Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and I'm excited to talk this week about a subject that is very near and dear to my particular heart, and it might be uh, near and dear to your particular heart, or it might just be a subject of idle curiosity. I have no idea. I don't know where you live. You're in my head. I'm in your head. Something. Today, we're going to talk about rural organizing, and we're going to talk about some of the differences between rural organizing and urban organizing. And we're going to be doing that with Sprout and Sherry Ann um, from Sabo Media and the Black Flower Collective. And we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show on the network. Ba-da, ba-da-ba. You will never, ever surrender or compromise. We occupied government buildings, we blockaded highways, and we talked about not just marching, but direct action to shut this shit down. Here we draw the line. Why here we say no more? Yate, we invite you to join us for Indigenous Action, a podcast where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities in the occupied lands known as the so-called United States, or what many people recognize as Turtle Island. This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire, and may the bridges we burn together light our way. Find us at indigenousaction.org and with the Channel Zero Network. Okay, so if you all could introduce yourself, I guess with your your name and your pronouns, and then like maybe a little bit about what Sabo Media and the Black Flower Collective are. Uh, yeah, hello. I'm Sprout. Pronouns are they, them. I'm Sherry Ann, they, them. Uh, we're here to talk about our new project in Grace Harbor County called the Black Flower Collective. And we're here also representing Sabo Media and our podcast Molotov Now. Where's Grace Harbor? Um, it's on the coast, western Washington. Cool. Uh, the main town is Aberdeen, where most people have probably heard of it is because that's where Kurt Cobain was born and grew up. Oh, one of my favorite trans women in history. That is my contentious belief. <laughs> um, if anyone ever wants to. It. Yeah. I've heard that one. I, I've, I've heard the theory. <laughs> yeah. One of my, one of my friends was friends with Kurt and was like, and when I first started coming out was like, wow, you talk about your gender the same way that Kurt did. And so that's, why I hold on to this particular theory so hard. Um, but I'm not trying to... No one has ever been more mad at me on the internet as people were when I said this once on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever. I'm not trying to specifically claim or not claim dead people, whatever. Anyway, that's definitely what we're here to talk about today. Um, so I guess really quickly, like, what is Sabo Media? What is Black Flower Collective? Well, uh, Sabo Media is a media project that we started 
because we saw a need for our own reporting of certain stories around the homeless and the mutual aid efforts that were going on in our town. Mm -hmm. Uh, The local paper of record, the Daily World, um, and the other local stations out here were just not covering the stories at all that we needed to be told. And so we stepped up to start talking about that stuff in our own community. Um, We've got a website on Noblog, sabomedia.noblogs.org, where people can go check out our articles. We've got comics. We've got uh, columns. We've got a podcast, as I mentioned. Yeah. So the Black Flower Collective was born out of another project here on the harbor that's been going for a couple of years, uh, Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network. And the organizers for that project uh, did a lot of talking to the community and discussing internally about what needs there were and how to meet those needs. And the solution came out as the Black Flower Collective. So our goal there is to have a piece of land just outside the city limits where we can have a, a sustainable eco-village to house low-income and unhoused, currently unhoused people, as well as pairing that with a social center and a maker space where we can have a, a people a business incubator and people um, providing social services. It, that's really – okay, one of the things I got really excited about when I first heard about this project that you all are working on about it is because I think about how much – how impactful social center type spaces can be in in smaller communities. Like it just seems to me like off the top of my head at least I think of like – I mean a maker space and a you know social center space and stuff like that in – in a big city rules and is great. And I'm really excited when they exist, but it seems like a much higher percentage of the town's socializing or something like it, it's a, it seems like a bigger deal in a smaller place. Am I like, am I off base about this? Like what, what are your kind of aspirations around that? Um, not, not, not at all. That's actually kind of one of the dichotomies that we talk about in our article and on our interview with uh, it on, it could happen here is like the modes of socialization feel a lot different from uh, large, big city, um, large population, big city communities and, you know, smaller rural towns and whatnot. For example, like in the bigger city, um, the way you meet people is uh, like, you you know, you you have your job or, you know, you go out to the club or, you know, what what have you. There's lots of different groups and classes you could take part in. You walk into any building or storefront and there's going to be a wall filled with flyers for different events and classes and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, Place like here in Aberdeen, you, you have to hunt and dig for that kind of stuff. And even when it does happen, you're more and even when it does happen, you're more than likely not even going to hear about it. The mode of socialization in uh, smaller places is usually through friends and family you already have. You know, you're hanging out at somebody's house and somebody comes to the door and it's like, oh, hey, here's my buddy Paul or what what have you. Yeah. Yeah, it always sort of occurred to me that, you know, living in a small town, I'm probably not going to do it. But I'm like, man, if I opened a punk venue, it would be the only place to go see music, you know. Um, but that's also maybe no one would come because there's like a tiny handful of punks in this town, you know? And Well, that's actually what we're thinking about starting to do with Black Flower to raise some funds and get our name out there is hold some benefit punk shows. Um, okay. 
there's again there's just not really much in the way of music venues out here and so what we're doing is just trying to find needs and then meet them and that's a huge you know when i coming from a city i i wasn't born here i moved here from a big bigger city area Mm -hmm. so you know having a music scene was huge that's what got me into political organizing in the first place so i think it's a good subculture to cultivate to try and get people onboarded no that makes sense i mean around where i'm at like people go people drive a long way to go to the punk show in the small town in the mountains you know that happens to be throwing that particular punk show or whatever thing it is people go a long way to see live music because you have to on the other hand like do you all have the phrase country close um like where it's like to go anywhere takes about 45 minutes right because like it's all backcountry roads um i don't know i just think about how like how far people have to go to go get to places yeah no i i haven't heard that term but i know the concept for sure um okay so the other thing i was thinking about when you were first talking about this is you know homelessness and mutual aid in a small town you know you're saying that this is kind of the the mutual aid network is kind of what you all grew out of or in response to or something like that um that's not something that people hear about much and you know i we hear about homelessness in big cities and stuff but i have a feeling that people who don't live rurally might not be aware that this is also a presence in small towns across the u.s as well as like you know people living in tents and um trying to make ends meet down by the river and stuff is that so that's like a when i say problem i don't mean the problem is that there are homeless people around i mean the problem is that they don't have homes you know um that is like a a big issue where you all are are it's a huge issue especially in aberdeen it's kind of the uh confluence for the county where everyone goes it's the only town in the county with like state social services Mm mm-hmm uh, so if you're homeless, you're going to be living in Aberdeen. Uh, there's a lot of conservatives who seem to think that it is a big city problem, that everyone mm-hmm. is being sort of imported from bigger cities or sent here from bigger cities. But a lot of who we talk to on the streets were born here and grew up here. Yeah. Yeah, not only all that, but uh, homelessness has been integral to the area that we live in as long as uh, settlers have been co- coming here to, to be part of this uh, area uh, western washington and the pacific northwest in particular has always been kind of the the end of the line as people were coming out here because they had no place else to go um they came out to try to uh, like you know build new uh build new homes not having to pay for stuff back east uh all the draws of settler colonialism out west yeah um yeah it, it, it's well the homeless camp that the city evicted off the banks of the chehalis river in 2019 had been there probably since the turn of the century in one form or another Holy uh, shit. vagrants yeah. and and uh, poor people just living along the side of the sides of the banks of the river yeah when the uh, port dock was still a thing before um, the the old one um, f- from um, the back like 1930s and stuff before it was finally t- tore out during the days of like Billy Ghoul and all that uh, peep it was I have no idea who Billy Ghoul is sorry oh um, just local 
legend they tried to frame him as like a serial killer uh, but he was getting blamed for all the deaths of from people in the mills and the factories and stuff and the bosses would dump the bodies in the river and they blamed him on this guy because he was a labor organizer was his name billy ghoul billy ghoul yeah that's so metal (laughs) i know that that's not um, the takeaway i'm supposed to get from here also i interrupted you i'm so sorry okay oh oh, you're fine there's a uh if you want to learn more there's a labor historian uh aaron goings who did a book recently called the the port of missing men if uh, you'd like to learn more about that okay but yeah it was common practice for um for workers or, or or vagrants or whoever to get uh, shanghai here mm-hmm. you know you you go to the bar they'd slip something in your drink and then you'd wake up you know out in the ocean thousands of miles away from home cool that's so great that's such a good system that is totally consensual for everyone and a good way to build society um yeah, that's uh that's Aberdeen. so yeah it's definitely a uh something that's existed here since uh colonial Settler yeah. colonialism showed up. I, I think it's really interesting how all different parts of the country or the world have these like different types of darknesses to them. <laughs> you know, and like like hearing about like, okay, yeah, this is the end of the line for settle for settler colonialism heading west and things like that. And then you have workers dumping bodies in rivers and people named Ghoul are running around getting blamed for it, and then everyone's getting it's like I don't know, it's just like really interesting. Um not in a good way but an interesting way so okay one of the one of the reasons that wanted to have you on to talk is you all recently put out an article about the difference between rural organizing and urban organizing and that's kind of the core of what i want to ask you all about pick your brains about is what are some of these differences between rural organizing and urban organizing and also what's the article called and where can people read it sorry Oh, yeah. It's called The Dichotomy Between Urban and Rural Political Organizing. Uh, you can check it out on our website, sabomedia.noblogs.org. You can find it under the co-conspirators section under the Harbor Rat Reports. Cool. And Sabo is spelled with a T for anyone who's listening. It's S-A-B-O-T. Yes. Um, so some of the dichotomies that we highlight are the police and the city, the relationship between uh those entities and activists, uh, the need for and difficulty in obtaining anonymity in -hmm. a small town while you're organizing. And uh, as Sherry Ann mentioned already, the sort of modes of socialization that happens between rural and urban organizing um, and just living in general. And then... Uh, there was a presentation to the National Association of the Rural Mental Health Associ- Rural Mental Health that we highlighted, in which one of the professors for Minnesota State University laid out two general approaches to community organizing. One that he found was most applicable to urban organizers, and one mm-hmm. that was most applicable to rural organizing. Well, let's let's start there. What it. What is it? What are these two modes? What is the difference? So he proposed two general approaches to community organizing, the Alinsky model and the Eichler method. Uh, Saul Alinsky had a conflict theory and model in mm-hmm. which community power focuses on people, uh, with underserved communities rarely having enough money to fight power, but usually have strength in people. These are called the have-nots. 
and in order to gain power, the have-nots must take power from the haves. It's aggression-oriented, and it focuses on people as the agents of protest and, and creators of conflict. Okay. This is primarily the attitude seen in urban organizing, with large protests, riots, and police resistance actions framing the debate around who has power and trying to seize that power over others for oneself. In contrast to that, Mike Eichler came up with a consensus theory and model that was informed by Alinsky, but focused on identifying consensus points between divergent groups. It sought opportunities to strengthen relationships between differing groups' interests. It was more collaboration-oriented and focused on each group's best interest in establishing trust, mutual agreements, and compromise. And then each method had, has its own list of rules. Oh, okay. Is, is Saul Alinsky the one who wrote Rules for Radicals? Yeah. Okay. This is so interesting to me because, like, one, like, when you describe those things two side by side, my thought is, like, oh, the second one's better. And, like, maybe that's not true. And also probably when I was younger, I certainly didn't act in that way, right? So what makes the second one not just better? <laughs> the way I kind of view it from uh, from what I've read is it's kind of like the offensive and defensive arms of the movement. Yeah, I guess that's the other thing is that, like, whenever I see a dichotomy, I want it to be false. And so I'm a little bit like, why not both? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so, so yeah. like, with... Um, I, I forget uh, exactly what, where how it shakes out. I'm certain they can uh, ex- expand more about it on in a second. But it's kind of kind of like a yin yang thing, where like rural communities will f- focus on one with a mm-hmm. kind of a dash on the other, while ur- ur- urban communities would focus on the other one with a dash of it's a little bit of both. With it's not so much like one is better than the other. It's more like one is more likely to arise in a small rural area and the other one is more likely to arise in a in a dense urban environment. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of that probably has to do with this main dichotomy that we highlight in the article between police and the city in a rural en- environment versus an, an urban environment. Mm-hmm. A lot of what you see in big cities is the importation of officers from surrounding areas so that no one serving on the force in say Oakland is actually living in the city of Oakland. They're generally imported from the surrounding suburbs. So you get a sort of like invader, uh, invading force sort of feel. And here majority, if not all of the officers live in the community. So while they're, they're all police and they all have the same social functions it it looks a lot different and the reactions like the activists reactions to those are a lot different okay yeah i i think about like the difference between a really bad thing happened near where i live that i don't want to talk about for sort of just general content warning type stuff and of the of the police that responded to this bad thing you know, the state police were how I'm used to cops acting, where they were, like, not so nice, right? Mm-hmm. And the sheriff, like, treated everyone at the scene like a human, right? Like, they treated yeah. everyone at the scene like they had just seen something horrible because that's what had just, something horrible just happened, right? I feel bad being so vague about this, but whatever. Um, people can deal. 
And yeah, because you can see in the state police, you know, whereas the sheriff is like, well, the sheriff grew up with everyone who's who's involved in this. And so it's it's really interesting to me because you get this thing where it's like, I often wonder, I'm like, well, rural culture is so into being outlaws. They're so into like, they do at least as much crime as anyone else, if not more. You know, why are so many center-right rural communities, especially more recently, all bootlickers? And like, I guess if you like generalize your idea of the police as being like, oh, well, that's Joe. He happens to be the sheriff as compared to like, these stormtroopers walk down the street and like kick everyone's heads in every once a once a day or whatever. You're gonna have like really different conceptions of them. Am I completely off base about like kind of? I probably no, just should have asked all. you what the what yeah because dis- like in smaller is. towns yeah. right around here, you definitely get like that Andy Griffith kind of vibe um, for, yeah. from some cops, or at least in uh, vibe from people's perceptions of the local police. Uh, yeah. Our local police definitely have their share of dirty dealings and un- unreported. Uh, abuses and whatnot i've known people personally who have been murdered by our local police department and it just but it doesn't get the attention that someone in the bigger city might we found that the police here have largely shown if not uh ambivalence like tacit Mm -hmm. support for the mutual aid that happens here we've Uh, gotten like the uh uh, just the word i'm looking for um like thanks, but different word. Uh, Nod. Yeah, we 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 we've de- yeah. we've definitely received words of like appreciation and thanks and whatnot from a, a handful of officers and whatnot at like the meals yeah. where they drive by, check it on people or whatever. And that's that's the officers is distinct from the city. The city would definitely shut us down in a heartbeat if they could, um, but the officers have no desire to do so. Some of them, anyway. That is interesting because, yeah, very often in an urban environment, a lot of the elements of the city often support a lot of the mutual aids. Not always, but like the police are more likely to be the primary antagonistic force. This might just be showing that I haven't lived in a city in a long time. But that is like my understanding. And it is interesting, though, because on both cases, the police are not part of the democratic existence of the society right like like one of the things that i found so interesting that we saw more boldly during the past few years is police departments just straight up being like i don't care what we're supposed to do we're not going to do that and you can't make us do it and then having the city back off and be like oh well i guess we can't make them and you're like it was a good moment for people to realize that like the police are completely not democratically controlled or not controlled by the people they're not you know it's this wholly separate thing so it's still interesting that they're like doing it in the good way. And that's probably why rural outlaw people tend to like the so-and-so cop because that so-and-so cop lets them get away with driving yeah, home yeah. drunk from the bar or whatever. There's, they have a lot of discretion. Yeah. Yeah. The, like the whole politics between the population as compared to the police is reversed mm-hmm. or, you know, one of those dichotomies where like in the, smaller town we have more liberal um quote-unquote chill police uh, as compared to a reactionary base uh, the re- the reactionary population that shows up to the big city protests the mow people down in trucks and stuff like mm-hmm. that um versus in the city where you have that more larger liberal population and outright fascist cops it does make it hard to push the 
all cops are bastards sort of rhetoric. Right. When you have that sort of, oh, here's officer so-and-so helping this grandma across the road kind of right. Facebook posts. <laughs> um, whereas if you're in a big city and you, like you mentioned, you have these sort of shock troop looking people come in and beating people in your neighborhood up every so often, it's a lot easier to make that argument that, oh, look at these uh, police, you know, we need to abolish the police. But out here, right. the argument is still the same. We believe we're not saying that we shouldn't abolish the police just because, you know, they're helping lady, old ladies with groceries. But right. it's a hard, it's a harder argument to make. Yeah, um, we're going to be expanding uh, on that, too, here soon in a article we're going to be releasing soon and a episode of Molotov Now that will be uh, discussing that article on called The the Problem with Good Cops. I'm trying to dive into this idea a little bit more. That's a really good idea and kind of an important thing because we need to, you know, I I believe ACAB, right? I, I believe that the police ACAB should be abolished. Um, but I also recognize why, like, that's not going to be my main talking point around here or, like, not my main starting talking point around here, partly because it is a more subtle bastardry because it's less obvious, like, well, that person hits people for a living, even though they still do, right? They, they exist to enforce violence. And, you know, um, one of the proudest strange moments of my life is I got a cop to quit once. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was a weird... I don't think I've told this story on air before. Um, I, I I wasn't, it wasn't solely me, but basically I was like at a nerd convention and I was like complaining about police. And this one person was like, I'm a police. And I was like, what? And then they were like, but I'm a good police. They didn't, mm-hmm. you know, but they were like, I'm good at, the, you know, and, and we, we talked. they knew they had to make that argument. <laughs> right, totally. But then even from that context, I was like, well, you throw people in cages for a living for breaking laws that aren't immoral, like having weed. And they were like, well, I, I choose not to throw people in jail for weed. And like, ah, oh, so you support the system that allows this to happen. You know, and it's like, and I saw them at another convention. And I don't know if it was solely this conversation, but I saw them at another convention and they're like, I quit. And it's like, I think the ACAB, yeah. it's like the rural ACAB is a little bit more of a like, Depending on, I mean, some rural police are just as fucking awful and terrible as any other cop in a like very obvious way. But you still have like, it's this, the role you are playing in society is bad and your choice to participate in that role is bad and has negative consequences versus just like, that guy's a piece of shit, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's bad for the officers themselves as human beings. Yeah, yeah, there's a YouTuber, um, th- That Dang Dad, uh, they mm-hmm. do some uh, videos. They're actually an ex-cop who are uh, fully ACAB, um, p- police and uh, prison abolition now. Um, they, they do a video kind of talking about how uh, being a cop, like, mess with their mentality and mess with their mind be- because of the way that they do the training and the way that they're expected to act. And um, yeah. it-, it does nothing good or he- healthy for them. Yeah. Uh, their channel isn't really, like, the ex-cop channel. They-, they have a lot of other really good content as well, but but they do have some good videos uh, on the- on those subjects. That's cool. So probably the most beneficial thing that we as abolitionists could do for police is to get them to quit their jobs. Yeah. You know, cause it's not good for anyone. I, I often make the argument 
with people when I'm talking about the, you know, the wider social revolution that it's desirous for everyone, including Bezos. Yeah. You know, I don't think that he's got a life that he's enjoying living, you know, a whole lot more than anyone else. I think that this system brutalizes and immiserates everyone. Yeah. And it's even those at the top who can benefit from having their social position taken from the hierarchies having being abolished. Yeah. And all this stuff requires us to do the same kind of organizing and the same kind of things that we're already talking about doing, say like, you know, preparing for a strike, for example, um, in, in the, at your workplace, the, like it's all the same stuff we would need to do to help cops be able to quit their job, you know, make sure that they're, they're going to be able to feed their, their families, making sure that their right. house is going to be warm, you know, all these same kind of support structures that we're building for ourselves. We need to offer, um, to, to these people, but with the pretense of like, you, you got to stop being a cop. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, they're kind of like, like Bezos is like the person I'm like least concerned about the well being of as relates to all of this. But I have always I've gotten into arguments with people about it where I'm like, no, I want there to not be billionaires by force if necessary, ideally without force, you know, like, yeah. I don't think that it's like needs to be like punished. Like, I don't believe in vengeance and punishment. I believe in problem solving for me as an anarchist. Like, right. I I believe. And sometimes that might look like stopping people by force. Right. Like, it's not I'm not saying like, oh we need to like think about the cops feelings while they're in the middle of hitting people or whatever. But sometimes the best thing you could do is to stop them by force. Yeah, totally. For everyone. Yeah. You know, so um, yeah, but before you can convince someone to stop punching someone in the face, you kind of got to grab their arm. <laughs> yeah. And frankly, if you can't convince them to stop punching them in the face, you might have to punch them in the face harder. You know, like, yeah. but, but that's not the ideal. The ideal is. But it's not coming from a place of revenge. Yeah. It's coming from a place of understanding that th- their actions need to be stopped. And solidarity yeah. with the rest of your community. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And this ties into what you all were talking about, about the difference between Alinsky and, and Eichler's models, right? The sort of a slightly more confrontational one that's more urban and a slightly more uh touchy-feely one that is more rural okay why is the more touchy-feely one i know that's not the most polite way to phrase it why is it the more appropriate one for rural places i can imagine right because you have these more deeper connections with the people around you or like what's the deal well i would definitely say it starts with like the modes of socialization mm-hmm. where Things are just a lot more personal in a, a small town. Everybody tends to know each other. Um, there's a lot, lot more deep, deeper roots where in a bigger city, you're probably going for more of an appeal to the masses kind of um, uh, tactic or mm-hmm. whatever. But especially with like rural community where we're wanting to make things community focused and whatnot, that is definitely going to be your biggest um, t- testing ground or um, in- incubator for <clears throat> for, for, for building community, having those personal connections, which to you know, to be able to have that community, have those personal connections, and whatnot, you actually have to you know put that work in. We need to be talking to people. We need to be having the conversations. We need to be you know not just going up to people and telling them like, "Hey, you're wrong." Here's how we need to be doing things, but right. saying, "Hey, what kind of problems are you facing in your life? What can we do to work together to you know solve those?" 
Well, and it's also a function just literally of the size of the groups. When you have a smaller group, like I, I know our crew here is is pretty tight. Um, and when you have a small group like that, you have to take into account everyone's thoughts and feelings a lot more than if you have like a general assembly or mm -hmm. something where there's a, a couple hundred or 50 or 100 people, not everyone might get their personal opinion heard in that setting. Whereas if you're with five people, 10 people, you know, you just kind of have to listen to everyone and come to a more of a consensus model. So it's it's kind of the environment itself that imposes the the different modes of organizing. Yeah, and another as aspect of that too is like, you know, in a bigger city, you're more than likely going to find more radicals. You're going to find more people who are already on on board. They're like, right. you know, I'm I'm for all the social justice issues. I'm all for, I'm for you know getting rid of capitalism and all these things, it, which helps you like avoid a lot of those harder conversations. And right. being it makes it easier to have like that specialized group versus place like here, we're having to do more work and finding the sympathetic liberals who are on that edge, bringing them in and helping pull them the rest of the way left. Okay. And is the way that that usually happens is that you're working on an issue together and then they see, they end up sort of assimilating to the sort of like leftist values of that group and realizing that they're appropriate to the problems that they're facing? Or like, what does that look like? Pulling people it's further to the left? Definitely its own uh, tug of war. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of active work that needs to be done to keep groups from um, um, being co-opted by more liberal ideals mm -hmm. or, or opinions and whatnot, which is always going to be a constant struggle. There's also an effect that we mentioned in the article. Uh, there's a study out of, um, I think, Washington University in St. Louis that they, they found that it was actually the geography that dictated whether people would lean more towards certain political labels. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the, that the, which kind of sounds like what you'd expect. But what they found digging deeper into the research was that it wasn't actually the underlying political beliefs of the people that changed. It was really just the labels that they used. So oh, what you can find is a lot of like um, the similar sort of libertarian tendencies mm -hmm. uh, that you might expect out of like a more social left kind of as we would conceive of it. Right. Uh, individual, but being labeled as conservative or, uh, you know, something on the right. So there's a lot of like mislabeling and that happens here in this country uniquely i think and sometimes deliberately where political ideologies are mislabeled libertarian's a big one that means yeah not what it means here everywhere else in the world yeah yeah but you'll find a lot of people who are calling themselves one thing and if you don't dig into that you just think oh they, they're conservative i know what that means but if you dig into it you find oh well actually you think you know, people in your community should have their needs provided for and, and people should take care of one another. Yeah. And you believe all of these actually sort of like leftist values. And it's interesting that it's actually 
again, it's like the environment itself that Im imposes these differences and not like any underlying individual traits. I saw this guy at the bar recently. Uh, he, he was claiming to be like an anarchist or whatever. And this is unprompted him having his own conversations. So I kind of got mm -hmm. curious. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, what, what do you got to say about that? And he started talking about Michael Malice. I'm like, all right, I'm finishing my drink. I'm leaving. I'm done here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. And then you have that in the bigger cities where everyone is like, oh, using the same exact label, but you find actually you think something completely different from me. Yeah, you have the like Democrats in California who are, I'm not trying to be like all the people in California, but like the politicians and shit who have all of the same policies of like fund the police, sweep camps, uh, criminal, enact the war on drugs, like whatever. The, the law and order liberals. Yeah, exactly. And like at the end of the day, there's not an incredible amount of difference um, besides like what they like, I had this experience that I really appreciated lately. It's very rare that you could start a sentence with, I was in a gun store talking about a conspiracy with the guy behind the counter and it was cool. <laughs> but that's but it happened to me recently in this, in this small town. And I'm talking to the guy behind the <laughs> Well, his conspiracy was, and I agree with this, there's very few things that he was like, Yeah, I think the gun I think the gun companies lobby anti-gun stuff constantly in order to spike sales oh yeah sure. yeah and that's what i that's what i told someone this earlier they were like oh where's she going with this and i say that and they're like yeah no yeah of course like that's <laughs> you know like you get these like run on guns like y'all are in washington i you know and uh i mean in this case it's i don't know valid is the right word but you know washington is is poised to to pass an assault weapons ban and so there's this run on guns in Washington. And that might be like, I mean, those are actually being banned. So if you go and get them now, it's legal. But as, as compared to like federally, right, where like Congress or whatever is talking about how they're going to ban, pass an assault weapons ban, like they're not. Like maybe I'm wrong, maybe whatever, but like they're not. And it's like, and the reason, it seems like the reason that they do that, I don't know if it's actually the reason or not. And that's the, but the effect of it is that everyone runs out and spends thousands and thousands of dollars on firearms. That's funny. That's that's what my mind jumped to when you brought it up before we started recording. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, well, they're going to sell some guns with that. Yeah. I mean, there are conspiracies, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And, 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 and this one is a good example where it, like, literally doesn't matter whether it's a conspiracy or not. Like, I also think that a huge reason as to why the Democrats don't actually ever do anything to solidify Roe v. Wade in law is so that they continue to use uh, Roe v. Wade, hold people's right to choose over their head, hold bodily autonomy over people's head to blackmail people into voting for them, right? Because as soon as it's solidified into law, then you're not as freaked out and need to go run for the Democrat, vote for the yeah. Democrat every time. And um, no one's going to vote for a Democrat unless there's a life and death reason. I know because they're the least interesting <laughs> political party that Yeah. Yeah. All it's they've ever excited. been able to do is be the lesser evil. Yeah. Have y'all had the experience of having people explain about Trump being the lesser evil? No. Uh yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> it's so fascinating to me because I'm like this is just literally the conversation I keep having with liberals. This is so wild. <laughs> you know, is only inverted. Like when Trump was very first sort of running. 
Nah, this Deep is recently. Was like, uh, I think it falls in with like in line with the. Uh, well, everyone uh, was like, "I'll just throw a brick. We're just going to throw this brick into the oh. window and burn it all down." I think it matches <laughs> with this wave of like patriotic socialists and mega communists and all that other weird online Twitter shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. My other question then is, how much does the weird, how much does the culture war in your experience filter down to the actual people that you're around? Like, I know that you all are in one of the most polarized states in the country. Um, it's a a deep blue state with, like, pockets of deep red, right? Um, Absolutely. That's definitely our area here. Is one of the pockets of deep red. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How does that Our filter... whole city council is pretty much far right. We have maybe one or two allies, quote yeah. unquote, and that's it. Yeah. Is that causing like specific issues around the issues of like, do are people getting harassed for wearing masks? Are people getting harassed for not wearing gender appropriate clothing? Are people of color being harassed? Like, I mean, obviously these are the answer, of course, on some level is going to be yes to all of these things because people are everywhere and stuff. But I'm just curious how much it is impacting people there. The culture. There's a, been a little bit of the whole drag, uh, anti-trans drag fear-mongering mm -hmm. but far and away the biggest thing on their plate is the homeless yeah yeah there um or i guess just poor people in general because it's hard to tell out here who's homeless sometimes and who's just wearing a, a real baggy coat because it's always wet um but they they've been pushing that issue for going on five years really hard and by they i mean soap Save our Aberdeen, please. It's our local fascist contingency. Yeah, and um, so they recently tried to do a protest against like a drag uh, a drag show that they were doing for uh, Christmas fundraising um, here recently. Uh, it was turned into a whole, whole thing, um, but ultimately nobody ended up showing up. They got freezed out by the fog and the rain and the mm -hmm. property was also set back a ways from the road. So it just, there was no place for them to effectively uh, uh, protest at, but here last year or the year before um, I'm, I'm bad with my time and dates, but there was a huge protest outside of a local star Wars shop. They have a big anti-trans protest that resulted after a trans uh, councilwoman that we had uh, at mm -hmm. the time had called out a local uh, uh, shopkeep, the owner of the Star Wars shop, for some transphobic signs that he had displayed uh, front and center at the business. That turned into a whole thing. They brought Proud Boys to town. It was it, it was a big ordeal. This offends my nerd heart very deeply. Nerd culture has always been one of the safest places for gender marginalized people. Yeah, and this I'm guy was offended. anything but safe. He 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 was uh, a, a uh, he was a groomer. He deal let, let his kid deal mm -hmm. heroin out of the back of the shop. It's just <laughs> yeah, it, nothing nothing but bad from this guy. Yeah, but this uh, small group of old ladies who were just trying to pick up trash mm -hmm. somehow coordinated like 50, 50 plus Proud Boys to show up for that event. So Jesus. It yeah. also appeared on Stormfront before any local news. It, 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 like, it went straight from local Facebook drama to Stormfront. Yeah, and then it was a part of the right-wing right outrage machine for about 
24 hours. They brought Matt Walsh to town. Uh, he put uh, something about based grandpa in that fucked off documentary, whatever you'd call it, that he made. The, the what is a woman shit. Yeah, because he's never met one. So that's why he made that. He went around <laughs> and like... It was the only way uh, he I saw Lance on Surf Times t- uh, t- t- talking about uh, him and the crew from Daily w- Wire uh, mm-hmm. about how none of them know how to operate a fucking washing machine. Yeah. It was just I was just thinking hilarious. about that shit. Imagine telling people that you don't know how to do your own laundry. Imagine He's thinking that makes it. you look strong. Yeah, <laughs> like and, and proud of it. <laughs> it it, nothing makes it more clear that they believe that they own the women in their lives than the fact that it's like because they're like all into the, the right wing mythos is all that self-reliance and shit right but it's like well I don't have to be entirely self-reliant because I own this wife yeah that's my wife and fucking <laughs> I you all gross. be shocked to know that I don't like misogyny um God, imagine being proud of it. I can't, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like there, okay. And this is a kind of a question too, right? Cause it's like, there's people I can talk to with different values than me, even values that like matter a lot to me where you can kind of be like, I see where you're coming from. I disagree strongly with your desire to protect women all the time or the, the, women the girls sports team or whatever fucking weird shit people are on you can like see where people are coming from and then you have the fucking nazis where you're just like how can anyone look at matt walsh and be like there's a man i can relate to i can't imagine (laughs) he's like the most boring guy too yeah (laughs) like all all his content like for all the inflammatory stuff he says like there's no flavor to do to, to it. It's just the most yeah. boring monotone. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you deal with that? I mean, like, 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 honestly, okay. As a question, like, how do you deal with like talking to people around you? This is one of the questions we get a lot actually on this show is people are like, I live in a place you talk about how part of preparedness is communicating with your neighbors, getting to know them. Um, how do I talk to people? you know, in ways that like are safe. How do I talk to people who, who are steeped in culture war or might be steeped in culture war? Like, and there's a, there's going to be like limits to this, right? Like I'm not going to like go knock on the door of the person with the Confederate flag and my address and be like, Hey bud, what's up? Right. But I'm like curious how you all navigate as organizers. Cause my, I just hide from everyone. Like my immediate neighbors know me, but I just hide from everyone because I'm not an organizer. Like, how do you all handle that? Well, I have no solid answers, but one thing I definitely would say it probably is a good start is like finding the the people like closest to you or at least closest to your immediate circle and just do what you you can to like help out, make yourself a a, a asset to them in in a Mm -hmm. way that you guys can start getting closer on some sort of other level and uh once you've gotten a point where it's like all right they care about you and they care about like how things affect you at least you might be able to start making that 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 bridge like hey here's something that affects you here's something that affects me this this is shitty but it's going to be different for everybody in every situation as said i don't really have any hard fast answers 
No, I mean, what we've found the best approach has been to just ask people what they need um, yeah. and start there and then don't over promise, you know, if they mm -hmm. need more than you can provide, let them know that. But consistency, uh, you know, showing up and doing what you tell someone you're going to do. Yeah, those those can help build a reputation of so, you know something that's going to generate respect regardless of your political views yeah um is you just being out there in your community helping people meet their needs yeah um and not and how you can do it as an anarchist is that element of asking what their need is and not going in as charity saying here's a bunch of of blankets i didn't call ahead to see if that's what you needed but you know like yeah going in saying hey what do you need and then helping them get that without judgment yeah that's pretty much what we've what we've done and it's taken us this far so i'm pretty proud of it makes sense well the main thing that y'all are currently working on we haven't talked too much about but kind of here at the end i'm wondering if you want to talk about your you know black flower collective you're talking about getting this space right um how's that going like what it, what are you all running into as, as things that are helping or not helping as you work on that? Well, our main obstacle and our main goal right now is uh, finding land. Uh, being mm -hmm. able to have property in hand is vital. Um, for our project, because between the hostile political environment in town and all the other problems associated with renting property, we need to have a property that we can own to uh, get this off the ground. And with property uh, values rising and skyrocketing um, and us pretty much essentially st starting from zero to get this uh, off the ground, we are head focused on trying to figure out how we can do fundraisers, how we can uh, launch our, some side businesses to help fund this project Uh mm -hmm because we're looking at pretty much anywhere between 300,000 and a million dollars we're going to need to raise for this property. Yeah. Yeah. Right now we're focused on getting the word out because it's a, just a brand new idea and a brand new project and starting to generate some sources of revenue. So we have a uh, black flower bookkeeping. If mm -hmm. there's any uh, radical businesses that need bookkeeping services, hit us up. Um, we also have black flower permaculture. Uh, so we're starting to do some design work around permaculture. And so those are two sources of revenue that we're trying to open up as well as the, as I mentioned before, the benefit shows, which yeah. not only would serve to start to uh, cultivate a sort of community around the project, but would hopefully be another fundraising effort. Yeah. Okay, so with the bookkeeping thing, one of the things that's come up a bunch of times, I've met people who've been like, I want to be an anarchist, but people think that they're like gate kept out of anarchy because they're not like punks or they're not like, their skill set is not like organizing, depending on what they think of anarchism, either yeah. they're not a punk, their skill set is not antagonizing cops, or their skill set is not like organizing or whatever, right? And I've met people who are like, oh, I, I'm only good at spreadsheets, I... I don't, I don't know how I could be of help. And I, I just like want to shake oh, them and be like, please. <laughs> every group I know needs a spreadsheet wizard. <laughs> exactly. 
So yeah. for a me- message for all the boozy radicals that are listening that are looking for their entrance into uh, um, radical spaces and, and anarchist mm-hmm. spaces and what whatnot, we definitely could use a lot more of those uh, skills that are um, removed from a lot of lower income people and what whatnot. Like, for example, I need a fucking anarchist lawyer. Get me <laughs> a Saul Goodman. Someone, please come through for me. Um, we'll talk after. <laughs> there are good. Yeah, I mean, lawyers, we need every yeah. skill, you know, when yeah. you think about it. Yeah. So yeah, um, there's no wrong place to get involved. That's the thing is you don't have to be out on the front line, uh, throwing yourself at a line of police. Uh, yeah, you can do anything. Just do it for the revolution. Yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. Well, that. That feels like kind of a good end note. Um, if people are interested in supporting you or hearing more about the stuff that you're doing, um, do you want to talk about your podcast? Like, where can people find your? Well, people can find your podcast where they found this podcast. It's called Molotov Now. Um, but you want to plug any of the stuff you're working on? Well, if you want to find more of our projects from Sabo Media, you can find our website at sabomedia.noblogs.org or check us out on your or check us out on your social media platform of choice at Aberdeen Local 1312. Um, <laughs> you want to ideally at Collectiva's Mastodon server. Um so for Blackflower, the website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Um, and that has all the information about where to donate and what the different projects that we're trying to get off the ground are and any information that comes up about new events or uh, shows, anything like that, we'll be putting on the website as well. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you all so much. And I, I can't wait to hear more about what you all are getting up to. Thank you. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can go and start a rural organizing project. Don't call it that. There's already a rural organizing project called Rural Organizing Project. Ooh, I should have them on too. But you can go organize. Or you can just be lazy and tell people about this podcast. Or you can rate and review and do all the algorithm stuff. Or you can support us financially. Supporting us financially pays the people who transcribe and edit these episodes. One day it might even pay the hosts of this episode. Wouldn't that be cool? Or the guests. I guess I should probably pay the guests first. But you can help make that happen by going to patreon.com slash strangers in the tangled wilderness. Strangers in the tangled wilderness is an anarchist publishing collective that publishes this podcast and a bunch of other stuff, including the podcast anarcho geek power hour for people who like movies and hate cops. Uh, the podcast strangers in the tangled wilderness, which includes our feature zines that we put out every month. And if you want to know more about our feature zines, you can go to patreon.com. I already said that part, but you get sent those zines if you're part of our Patreon. And if not, you can look at them for free by going to our website, which is tangledwilderness.org. And it really is the Patreon that that makes all of these things happen. And I'm incredibly grateful to everyone who supports it. And in particular, 
I'm grateful to Jan Oxalis, Janice Page, Allie Paparuna, Milica Boise Mutual Aid, Theo Hunter, Sean, SJ Page, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Hoss the Dog. And if you want to hear your name listed in this list, you just head on over. No, I can't do the I can't do that voice. I'm not very good at the non-earnest voice. But it yeah, really, it means the world. It also means the world that so many of you listen to this show and tell people about it. Um, It's what makes it worth it. And take care.